it's Monday, and we've got a very special episode of Graphic Policy Radio. We're back on the air after uh, taking some time to discuss Jessica Jones, but we're back, and we're going to be focused on comics again. Uh, tonight's a special time uh, coming to you at 6 p.m. instead of a normal 10 p.m., uh, and that's because we've got a special guest who will be joining us in a little bit. Uh, we've got Kieran Gillen who's a favorite uh, writer of ours, has been on the show in the past. Uh, he came to attention in uh, 2006 with a uh, collaboration between him and uh, Jamie McKelvey for their work on uh, Phonogram. Uh, Jamie and he have yet to escape each other and somehow been roped otherwise innocent Matt Wilson into uh, their unfortunate pop comics, Katamari. Uh, their most successful work is the 2014 <laughs> uh, ongoing series, The Wicked and Divine. Um, Karen's other books for Image include three and the forthcoming Ludocrats, which I will definitely be asking him. Uh, he's worked for Marvel, uh, Avatar, many uh, others. Uh, so he's actually located in London, which is why we're doing this special show to uh, get him on the air. Um, but before we uh, discuss things with him, I want to uh, introduce my co-host, Alana. How you doing? I'm great. I'm great. You know, I've been writing publicly uh, for a while now that Kieran is my favorite contemporary comics writer or comics writer of my generation slash his generation. Um, People have a tendency to be humble when one says that. Uh, So hopefully he won't tell me, no, 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 that's not true. But it really is. Um, I've just found that I relate to and identify with his work a great deal and that we're coming from a lot of the same places in terms of our interests and passions and um, I just am so excited to have him joining us on the show again. And actually, folks, we have interviewed him once before. So if you want to hear about, you know, how he first got into comics and all those sort of backstories, it's a great time to just go and listen to the earlier one we taped about. I guess it was probably about a year ago, because um, today we'll be focusing more on what he's doing now and moving forward. Yeah, so you're you're a huge fan of his um and uh, he looks like he's joining us, so let's get him on right now. Can you hear Kieran. me? Yes. 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 Sorry about that. I, uh, <laughs> stupid technology. I guess I probably should have been clearer on, on things. <laughs> huh. Sorry about that. Uh, basically, my uh, my browser was going crazy. <laughs> I, I have had that many times. Uh, a lot of knows and has dealt with me when I'm in complete meltdown mode of things not working on the browser. Ah, uh, so, well, I'm here now. I'm sorry to keep you waiting. Thank you. No, this is perfect. We just got to introduce you. So we're at the point in the conversation where I wanted to just ask what's new? What's uh, what's new that you're working on that we haven't talked about uh, that's coming up since we spoke about a year ago? Wow. Um, last year was kind of like uh, furious in terms of there was this awful day when I was apparently like 8% of the comic book industry single-handedly. I had like... Um, <laughs> <laughs> like nine books out or something like that that day um and that was messy <laughs> uh which is kind of like, there was a lot of old work coming out and like stuff i'd written previously was finally coming out so it wasn't like i was just doing a troll soul and working myself to death but that was a lot of work <laughs> and i'm in the position now of essentially trying to step back a bit in that i've got um i'm planning for the second half of the year to be uh, trying to really explore what i want to do next I'm kind of aware that I'm like two years from the end of The Wicked and the Divine. You know, I must be approaching, you know, um, Darth, end has, Darth Vader has a logical end. Uh, a variety of other things I've got are kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, coming to a point. So at least uh, a part of it is trying to create space. 
So in terms of what's new, uh, what has come out since last year? Uh, ongoing at the moment is, is Wicked Divine is back in April, where me and Jamie are doing more stuff and making stuff explode, which is fun. In that kind of the previous arc has been very meditative and quite slow motion. It's kind of like um, we, I, I joke, it's our blue period. I sort of say. Um, <laughs> uh, and the next arc, kind of in a very Bowie yes, yeah, Bowie is very much the watchword. We go completely opposite way after that period, and we're doing um, it's very let's dance. It is kind of um, I jokingly describe it as the video uh, "Too Bad Blood" by Taylor Swift, uh, but for five issues. Uh, so it's not the high heels and killer. Uh, but that's going to be fun. Uh, I'm doing uh, a book called Ludocrats, which I announced last year and it hasn't happened. Uh, it should be happening next year. Basically, Ludocrats is a book which is kind of um, Asterix and Obelix, but um, meets June in this kind of like enormously over-the-top fantasy comedy. Uh, and it's about the joys of the ludicrous. And perhaps appropriately, it's actually been held up by bureaucracy. <laughs> it's really boring uh, legal stuff it's, it's so rubbish <laughs> eventually I'll talk about it and it's like wow that is the most pathetic reason for a book not to happen uh, but everyone still loves it and um, me and David and Jim will be doing it soon and everyone loves everyone so it's not really anyone's fault which makes it worse as well <laughs> um, what else uh, I'm doing a, um, book um, Mercury Heat, a book called Mercury Heat for Avatar uh, which is mm-hmm. just starting its second arc now which is very much a kind of 2000 AD mode uh, homage to every single VHS video I might have burnt out in the 90s. It's uh, it's very over the top and uh, like it was. It kind of started with like a hard science fiction thing. I wrote like a few, uh, back in 2010, and the second arc has started now and has, has become a more kind of meta um, uh, zombie act film, really. <laughs> Uh, and I also just announced the book I'm doing as part of Cinema Purgatoria, which is Alan Moore's anthology, which launches in May. And that is, uh, the book is, the story is called Modded, which is like, I, I sort of described, R-rated uh, Pokemon set in a Mad Max universe done kind of in the style of the Fast and the Furious. So it kind of like uh, demon raising <laughs> as sport, you know, uh, and it's all kind of, um, it's, like, it's a hell of a high concept one line. Uh, and that's like eight pages. It's me digging into that kind of um, playful alternate history of video games. That's the other way of looking at it. And the kind of the background to the world is me mapping the rise and fall of this sport against how video games created. So it kind of all kicked off in 1977 with Space Invaders, or my metaphor for Space Invaders, uh, which of course isn't true. But you know, also the that not being true is also part of the story. Uh, and that's it for now, I think. Uh, oh, well, oh, that's you know, all. Kind of the trades coming out, you know, Darth Vader is still happening. Phonogram, the final volume drops like next month, like early, like halfway through March, and that's it really. Which is, um, it sounds like a lot, but compared to last year, it's not a lot at all. Wow, it's a ton. I mean, last year, you know, was the I guess yeah, it was last year <laughs> was the conclusion of Phonogram, which is you know really the comic that you first became known for doing and has been a project that you guys have been working on together for a very long time um, and Wicked and the Divine got really huge last year so you know it's just incredible to hear all these additional projects that I can't imagine doing it I, I, I wanted to start actually talking a little bit about Phonogram um, you know the, sorry go ahead 
Uh, the um, audience, you know, I, I, one of my missions has been, because I adore Phonogram, has been to get all the, the folks who've been reading The Wicked Plus The Divine to also read Phonogram. And a frequent thing that comes up is the reading order. And I think both you and I have concluded that the best reading order for Phonogram is to read The, the Singles Club, which is the second trade paperback, and then go back and read the first. And then and now would be the third at the end. Um, and it's interesting because I think, I had always figured that perhaps the reason it worked that way is that, you know, you had different audiences in mind in a way when you were writing your first volume than when you were writing your second. Hmm. Yes. It's a like little that, bit like that. The second was sort of more for new people, whereas the first maybe were for people who are part of coming out of more, a more British audience who are more familiar with the things you were talking about. I, I mean, basically the first one, I mean, everything you're saying is kind of true. I think the real reason we suggest the second one first <laughs> is just because we knew what we were doing. Um, you know, me and Jamie, um, Rubitania is our kind of really raw, like garage band sort of vibe. And the whole thing is really, it, it's, it's really lo-fi. It's, it's kind of designed to feel like a fanzine. It, it's got to, it's really in black and white. And this whole sequence mm-hmm. is just like a fantasia based around fanzines. And really, you know, me and Jamie just weren't as good as we were. <laughs> in that whole like, I'm really very, you know, we're both very proud of the first volume, but kind of in basic competence. So it's like, there are things in the second volume which won't trip people up as much, despite the fact there's many things in the first volume that are a bit more accessible. I mean, there's more of a plot. You know, the second one is much more about a, a sense of mood. Uh, whilst the first one is kind of David Cole goes on an adventure to find out what's happened to Britannia. Um, but what you're saying is also true. Mm-hmm. Let me take a sip of water. Yeah, I, I mean, um, it's interesting. I... Yeah, sorry, I was about to say, specifically, all the responses to the first one where people didn't get it, you know, the first time we were like, I thought a lot of things was kind of simple. Not simple is the wrong word, but kind of like attitudes that people have towards music and people who like music and people who talk about music. And and kind of realized, oh, right, I've got to, everyone is thinking this is, you know, Cole's a good thing. You know, and I thought it was fairly obvious Cole is, it's, it's kind of, it's a monster and the story's about him overcoming the monster. And there's a lot of people who yeah. essentially, how can I phrase this, people who have a knee-jerk response to the word hipster and use it in that way. You know, they literally cannot see anything other than their prejudice of what someone who likes music is, despite the fact that it's clear it's against that purpose. And with Singles mm-hmm. Club, it was like, no, I will methodically go through step by step and show this is not what we're interested in talking about. This is fundamentally about whatever you love and the effect it has on you and that kind of stuff. So it kind of like, mm-hmm. it was, the second one was very explicitly to go through these different sorts of people with very different appreciations and love of music. And that's at least part of the reason you start with Penny. You know, Penny is, you know, an innocent. She's the absolute, you know, she's somebody who loves everything. And she, loves, and she almost certainly loves you and thinks everyone's amazing. Um, you know, and that's kind of the opposite of someone like Cole or Emily, who are like, you know, bitter birth out husks. <laughs> um, and we kind of went through step by step and you end up all the way back with um, Kid With Knife. You know, and that kind of like, and, this, and that, that kind of final page of um, Singles Club is that kind of that punchline. And especially that's at least one of the reasons why we suggest going in with Singles Club, because it does kind of like, if you have prejudices, it tries to get people past them. And it was definitely by the time I, and if you actually read it with the B-sides in the single collection, that's especially true. Um, and and sort of like, <laughs> uh, but before, if you've read all Singles Club and you still think that the book is that, well, basically, fuck you. <laughs> We've been <tried> really <laughs> hard. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. sorry, I can't break your prejudices down anymore. <laughs> and I finished the answer. Sorry about that. I went on around. No, that was super helpful. You know, I I feel like when I'm explaining the comic to folks, sometimes they presume that 
because I'm a big music geek, that they're that I love this because I love the music that you love. When actually, I think our tastes are peripheral to each other, but our tastes are not the same. And I think mm. you do an excellent job in the series of explaining what it is that you love about this. You have a glossary in the back. I've learned about music that I didn't really know that much about through your writing. Um, and it's interesting because people don't usually think about comics as being a vector for getting people to get exposed to other kinds of media. But it actually is. Sandman introduced people to different kinds of music. Um, you know, lots of comics have references to movies that people then check out because they've read them. And you helped me get a better understanding of, you know, the brick pop of the aughts and 90s as opposed to the 60s stuff, which is what I know. Mm. I think it's interesting. I mean, me and Jamie have always been into art that is gateways. You know, the idea of this art leads to other art. You know, uh, and I can sort of trace things I followed through people essentially recommending it through the work. As you say, you know, Sandman was a, a great gateway, you know, to many other things. I mean, one of the interesting things about Sandman, which is this is one of Jamie's arguments, Sandman also works as a gateway to reading different sorts of comics. Because, you know, mm-hmm. Saints, due, due to the changing artists, some of the radically different artists on that series, and there's definitely some artists people didn't like as much as other artists, but that, that, that's kind of part of the point. It's a book about stories, and it's a book about comic stories and how comic stories can look. You know, that's like a, a textual meta-element, and it kind of educates an audience. And you kind of come out the end of Sandman with a, a wider appreciation of what comics can do. You know, and that's something me and Jamie have, tr- have completely ripped off in the last arc. <laughs> in that kind of, you know, quite radically different artists serving um, different kinds of stories in our universe. You know what I mean? Uh, but yeah, I, we, I mm-hmm. love that. You know, I, there's so much, there's nothing I like more than reading a book or a, a, music, a band or whatever and sending me spinning off in a different direction. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree with that take on Sandman as well. And I think one of the other things that you guys have done successfully is, like, I am that record store music guy snob asshole, and you, through <laughs> Phonogram and through Wiktiv, have really helped me interrogate my own tastes in a way that I found very meaningful. Um, you know, you've asked me, you've made me ask questions like, why am I horrified that Grimes didn't already know about, oh, please remind me, who was it that you introduced her to? Uh, take on me. I must say, we're presuming that, as in she kind of like tweeted about okay. suddenly thinking, you know, that it followed shortly after us talking, you know, Jamie interacting with her on that way with the covers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wouldn't 100% claim that, but yeah, it is a, okay, I can understand I that horror. But, you know, yeah, but basically, like, you guys have helped me inter- interrogate, like, you know, okay, like, there's the music that I like, and a lot of that is coming from a specific, generally, like, very pale male and old and aggro location. And, <laughs> you know, like, why is that what's good? The whole notion you have in phonogram of the club that just plays only songs of female vocalists made me look at my music collection and be like, wow, Nico is really lonely right now. Um, <laughs> Nico was always, always lonely. <laughs> it's like, yeah. That is true. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually think that like reading and engaging in your work has changed how I interact with music myself. Thank you. I mean, honestly, uh, so, I mean, phonogram yeah. was my the, the stuff I essentially taught myself. You know, I know exactly what you mean because you know, getting almost okay. If you had to paraphrase every single phonogram story, including all the B sides, the fundamental story is somebody gets over their own sorry ass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yes. yeah, I, I, I would, think that you've kind of. Sorry, I think we're talking, sorry, talking across. But no, I would agree, you know, because uh, I've been that guy and I, I have flashes of that guy. Um, and it's like trying to, okay, what, what, what is the best way to... I, I'm, I'm quite sappy as a human being in many ways. Like how, how best can we be kind to each other and ourselves? And, uh, you know, what, what we really kind of get from art and why does this mean to us in this way? 
you know, and I, I write a lot about transitional people in terms of like moving from one stage to their life to the next, uh, you know, and the, the concept of pretension. And I, I mean that in the most definitional way in terms of so why do you know people often it's a standard joke about like many forms of music subsets oh you're such an individual why do you dress the same and that's like a joke from the outside but i'm much more interested in saying why does people choose to dress the same you know and what, what they're trying to discover about themselves um mm-hmm. so yeah it's it's I, i'm glad you get something from it yeah very much um you know and i i i think that one of the pieces of music that I know you definitely have successfully transmitted to a new audience, even though, again, I, you know, folks like us are always coming to terms with the fact that the kids might not like the things that are important to us. But I do think you did a very excellent job of, you know, drumming up some more youth awareness around David Bowie, frankly, through, through Wictive. Um, and I, when Bowie died, you know, the piece that you guys were interviewed in was fantastic and, and definitely one of the more meaningful ones I'd read. But what I also thought was really interesting is you essentially then wrote some fanfic of your own comic of Lucifer, the character, responding, uh, interacting with Bowie. And I don't, I don't think I've had another comics writer write fanfic of his own work before, um, and that's just really meta and beautiful. <laughs> it is weird because it's like uh, that. It's the un- how to phrase. It. I am interested in fanfic despite not being allowed to read it. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I mean? As in, in the kind of the boring mm-hmm. legal reasons, but it's like yeah. as, as an intellectual construct, I find that interesting. Uh, but yeah, um, it felt like I wanted to write something about Bowie, uh, and it just, that just felt like a very natural way to talk about it. Um, so yeah, and you know the idea of like also like. Of course, I miss writing Lucifer. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, actually, I miss her too. Have you noticed the dates? Uh, like Lucifer dies the day after Bowie's dies. Uh, Bowie died on January fourth. Lucifer dies on January fifth. Um, and of course, yeah, I know. And of course, we were, when we the world found out, it was January the fifth. Uh, as someone else has pointed okay. out, Bowie would have been diagnosed with cancer when uh, Lucy became a god, so it had two years to live. Um, yeah. Uh, well, so, if yeah, it had been the, five years, it would have been even more significant. Yeah, I'm also. <laughs> sorry, if it, you know, the, there's part of me that kind of, if they ever, you know, the whole Wicked TV thing, if they ever change it to a TV show, I'm pretty sure they will say, let's make it five years to live rather than two years to live, because five years is, of yeah. course, five TV series. And, you know, that's the sort of change I can get. At the same time, if you change oh. it to five years, to, if you change it to five years to live, instantly you have, you know what you have to get for the theme tune. <laughs> so. Well, I was going to say, if you get five years, yeah, that was my yeah. For, for folks who don't know, five years was the first song off Ziggy Stardust. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I actually, I was scared to ask you about the TV show because I wasn't sure to what extent folks could talk about it. Really, I mean, I know it's a ways off, um, but you have a very comic booky comic. Um, oh yeah. Because of. You know, you also have a very easy to read comic for people who aren't used to reading comic page formats, I think. Like, it's very clear the art is really intelligible. But, um, you know, you've written a story that I think will be great in television because it's going to be super visual, because little characters are diverse, God willing. But it's also like, much like Sandman, you have a, you have a story that's a very comic booky story. And I, it's hard for me to conceive of how that would work as a show. Uh, and I, I hope it happens. God knows. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, we're kind of... Me and Jamie, I mean, it's still early days yet and all that, but um, mm-hmm. me and Jamie are very pro-adaptation. As in, we kind of don't really like adaptations which are too faithful. We like people, for example, the, bit, the only bit in Watchmen that really worked was the bit where they started taking leniencies, the, the credit sequence. Everything else didn't really work mm-hmm. at all. And it's like you've got to be slightly, you know, and that's at least one reason why we do, I mean, Photogram is deliberately written to be almost impossible to adapt. 
Um, <laughs> and, you know, Wicked if it's kind of, and we, what do you say? We, we try to be very accessible, but a lot of the tricks we do, whilst very visual, are comic book formalism. So it's, it is very much a kind of like, we kind of hope if it, people adapt it, would take the, okay, how can we do something that has that, that makes you feel like this, but in our medium? Um, you know, I mean, if I was, I don't know, what I would do would be, um, almost everything is soundtracked, but apart from the performances, you know, the, uh, you have soundtrack fights, you soundtrack everything else, but when people do the God performance, it's just abstract noise or something, you know, mm-hmm. make it, you know, suddenly become a Hannibal art film. Um, you know, that I would hope, I hope if whoever approached the material would approach it like that. But you know, Nivan, you could approach it in a sort of joke, you could do it in a really gleefully trashy way as well. <laughs> you know, which is basically mm-hmm. a soap opera, you know. <laughs> uh, so God knows what it would be like. Huh. I mean, it's interesting also with Wicked, like, phonogram is very much, even though, like, yes, music is a stand in for whatever it is that you're obsessively, whatever culture you, you're obsessively addicted to. But um, Wicked, you've explicitly made their performances not actually be music. They're something experiential. And when you, like, what was the decision to have it not be music, even if we never hear the music? Uh, the decision not to make it be music. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. I, I, pardon me if I've said this before. I mean, I, uh, but at least part of my thinking, you know, the quote about, um, I, was, I literally always forget who it's by, uh, and I'll paraphrase it badly, but uh, all, basically all art conspire, uh, aspires to the condition of music. It's the mm. idea that basically music creates feeling and emotion without any reason. Well, everything else kind of moves by, you know, there's a, there's a reason why you read a sad story. It's sad because I empathize with that person listen to a series of noises in order and it makes you cry there's no reason for that you know what i mean it, it's like a it's like your brain being short hacked essentially uh so all art aspires to move about move without reason it's just a direct connection between this this creation and you um and we and the idea of what, doing what the gods do was allow the idea was what the art gods do is basically what music aspires to be you know, the idea, if you could think of a higher art form that's more direct and more connective than music, it's what the gods do. Uh, so, so, you know, it's actually something that doesn't exist in our world, but it's a kind of the platonic ideal of art. Um, and that's why we kind of did it like that, because we didn't want to make it be pop stars, because it's got to be a little bit flexible, because this is every 90 years through history. So I, I kind of mm-hmm. wanted, you know, I'm playing, you know, I've, I've said like the 1830s gods are, at least some of them are the romantic poets. So yeah. in those points, we're talking about poetry. So no, it's something a much more flexible idea of what art can be. Like whilst we're mm-hmm. using the tropes of pop stars, you know, we're really talking about art generally. And that's that's the reason why we did it. One, if we do, yeah. One of the questions I kept getting from folks is they want to know which other pantheons we'll get to see, but you guys might not know that yet. But if you have anything you could tell me, that would be amazing. As in which periods? Mm-hmm. Um, let me think. I've got basically the current plan is basically when Jamie comes back in April, which everyone can pre-order now. Um, look, there's my capitalism <laughs> plug. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's, it's actually the next arc's really, really, really fun. Um, but ba- Jamie does his arc, and then the month after we do a, a a guest annual, and that's set in a different period. And then we have the trade come out, which doesn't include the annual, and then Jamie's back the next month. So in other words, we kind of have something out every month from now on. But Jamie does all the current Pantheon stories. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's kind of our plan. Uh, the first one I plan to do uh, is the 1830s. I've got, I'm sort of researching the romantic like, set story now. In fact, I've got to write it quite soon. Um, 
which is a lot of fun. I get to do Shelley and Byron and Mary uh, and probably a bit of Keats. Uh, I, I think I'm going to get Blake in. I think I'm going to get a bit of Blake there, or, uh, a bit of Blake in there, uh, a few other people as well. Uh, that'll be fun. And it's set entirely at the in the weekend. Um, yeah, the lake in uh, Lake Geneva, the the one where you know basically the weekend uh, Mary wrote Shack Frankenstein. Um, yeah. So that's let's be honest. That's a fairly obvious place to put it, uh, and frankly, yeah. that's the right place <laughs> to put it. This is Wicked. There's nothing subtle about Wicked. <laughs> And you might imagine what the writing of Frankenstein might be through, like, Wickedest metaphor. Um, wow. Other ones we're thinking about. I want to do one in Rome. I want to do, uh, obviously, the, the, the first Pantheon. I will do at some point. I want to do um, one in the 1820s. No, sorry, not 18, sorry, the 1920s, which is kind of, I want to do an Agatha Christie take on the modernist gods. Like, um, uh, and when the, especially, and then there was one but with the gods, which is a fairly obvious one. I kind of want to do an Arthurian one. Uh, the Arthurian one, it, you can just literally think for a second, you think, okay, now I understand how, you know, an anchor's Merlin and you kind of roll with it from there. Um, but yeah, I've got a list. I want to do a, a South American one, a uh, South American pantheon. I want, there's, there's, a, there's a Japanese pantheon I'm playing with, uh, which I'm not quite sure I can pull off because uh, it's, it's, it's more conceptual than a natural Pacific story. Um, mm. But yeah, basically, since I've got like a number of annuals I want to do, I'll just basically pick and choose stories until I find, <laughs> until I run out of periods I want to play with. But at least part of the thing with Wicked, the idea is so big that we kind of want people's own imaginations to fill some gaps. You know? Um, mm-hmm. And like the idea that this is a big, and you can dance with it, and it's, it's, it's bigger than we can ever possibly all write. So at least some of it is going to be the readers to make their own. Yeah, those are absolutely conversations that people have. I mean, this is true for Phonogram also. You know, when it be, when we when we knew that the volume three of Phonogram was going to be the last, people were all talking about like, well, what are the music milieus and times that would be really interesting to see phonomancers in? And I I'm completely taken with that idea, um, especially because of the different kinds of people that you could have using magic in that way. Um, but you guys are definitely like keeping that IP close and, and buttoned down, I would imagine. Never use the word IP about phonogram. <laughs> phonogram is huh. far from the concept of le- uh, law and IP is the world. No, it's, uh, that's our pure indie, indie kid coming out there. Uh, <laughs> sorry, Alana. Uh, it's definitely closed. Uh, phonogram is basically me and Jamie. Um, we, back in the day, we talked about doing an anthology, as in like opening up the universe and the settings to other writers and artists. And that's not, you know, we might still do that. Um, there's other, I've heard of, there's definitely an alternate dimension where me and Jamie just did 50 issues of Phonogram, you know, and we did it from like 2006 to 2011, 2012. And that would have been a completely different life. You know, that would have been like, I, I had a plan. I wanted to do an arc set in New York City and I was going to go and live in New York for three months and just write about whatever happened. You know, that was the kind of, that's the alternate dimension of how Phonogram could have been. Uh, I wanted to do something out there, like the concept of punk or whatever. I wanted to do... Mm-hmm. Um, um, I, mean, I, have to, I have to go back into the fold. There's a story I wanted to do about being Cole before he became Cole, before we met Britannia. And basically that would be about my teenage metal head days in uh, Stafford. You know, that would, you know, that would all be about yeah. that complete dead end, nowhere town of it all. Um, and, that, you know, that's quite an appealing... You know, that... If we're ever going to do, there was a point when Phonogram was going to be four volumes, 
like the the first three, then we do a fourth one, and the fourth one would have been that volume, which would have been a prequel essentially, and the last scene would have been led into Cole meeting Britannia, so the whole thing forms a loop. Um, but we're not doing that because I don't think it's that good a yeah. story. I kind of like, I, I picked I picked up I, I used some bits and pieces elsewhere, and I must say there are yeah, other ideas. The other ideas I've got for phone, sort of like phonogram esh stories, but they're in different time periods completely, and um, I can almost separate them from phonogram and do them. You know what I mean? As in, they, since phonogram seems so phonogram, sorry, phonogram has become so specifically about like Cole and Emily and that crew. It, my kind of, you know, these other stories are now kind of separate from that. So I, I feel free if I was ever going to tell those stories, I would do them in a, something that was. You know, like Wicked is not that far away from Phonogram in many ways. So these story ideas would very be clearly coming from the same creative part of me that makes Phonogram that makes Wicked, but they wouldn't be Phonogram. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Comes, we, I, I... I was just saying, Phonogram, we definitely have people who, Phonogram's a book that changed people's lives. And I say that in a way which I'm ultimately I'm wincing. But, you know, it, it was offers, you know, people got the twos comic. You know, it was the, um, oh yeah, that you, you changed the way I think about music. And, think about mm-hmm. the music they love uh, and that's incredibly mm-hmm. powerful you know and they, they you know people go around ha- feeling like a phonomancer and giving yourself the privilege to think about yourself and your life in a magical way is very powerful I think completely and I also feel like there's a bit of a split like when I talk to this is primarily when I talk to other comics critics not when I talk to the general public but I feel like the people who are most passionate and obsessive about phonogram are folks of our generation and, like, the people whose lives are completely, like, all about, like, we did, I, I find are often younger. Yeah, it's, you can only, you know, you can only have one Invisibles, you know, if a book will hit you at mm-hmm. the right age. When I sort of describe, I mean, Wicked being this, you know, probably four years book, I mean, it'll be five years with the public, you know, but essentially about 40 issues, 30 to 60. And it's like, it's almost like the length of a degree. It's the idea that you will literally come in the beginning of Wicked and I will teach you everything I have ever learned. <laughs> and at the end of Wicked... <laughs> You know, you will you will have learned. You'll basically be able to skip uh, everything I learned between up to like thirty eight, thirty nine, and that's kind of what Wicked is explicitly designed to do. It's about like what what I learned about being a creator, and to be honest, what I learned about being a human being. Um, you know, that's a weird thing. Of course, you know, we're, I've written up to issue twenty two, which is about the halfway point. Um, so if you're and I know the end, and I know the end very precisely to the level where I've um I, I've started writing bits of it when I'm you know when I'm bored basically. <laughs> Um, so it's so um, the heartbreak thing I worked with it's, it's all there in my head and I know the journey I know the sort of the, what I'm trying to do with it and what me and Jamie are kind of wrestling with um, I just want to sit down and tell everybody everything <laughs> it's like if you get me drunk enough in a pub I'll probably just tell you the whole plot uh, oh, I, I'm wow. kind of awful don't, don't do that noted we won't do that now <laughs> I want to talk with you about writing a little bit um, you know I've had people who are new to your work ask me basically like oh is Jamie queer because I'm sorry, well, not Jamie and you, because of the, like, excellent representation and portrayal that you guys do. I've had a few queer people ask me, like, oh, my gosh, this is a straight guy, and he gets, like, 90% of it right, and that's amazing. Um, and, you know, I, I, you've been somebody who's spoken a lot about the importance of representation and doing it right, and one of the points that people always raise is, like, you have to talk to other people whose experiences are outside of your own. But I also know that asking people for feedback on those kinds of things and having those conversations can be hard. So when you're writing, when you're writing characters or people of color, when you're writing queer characters, like how are you talking with your friends who have those life experiences to help you create that to create those in your own work? 
I think it's like the how to phrase this. With which, it just, a lot of it depends on the book because a lot of it depends on how quote unquote deep you're going. And I don't mean that kind of like um, as in like I deliberately set Wikdiv in the UK for many reasons but one of the reasons was I understand race in the UK better than I understand race in the US you know on a, on a, on a, like a gut level because you know mm-hmm. uh, the very specific experience of race has a texture and I, and I am more familiar with that texture um, on a daily basis despite the fact you know I talk to my you know all my American friends talking is one thing, but that kind of live that that kind of live gritty level. At the same time, Young Avengers mm-hmm. being a less social realist book than Wikdiv meant that you know <laughs> the fact that I'm a British guy writing American uh, race constructs uh, and experience. It's, it's some, some you know that that that's less hazardous to to fuck up because the book is less um, about that. If that makes sense. You know, because you know, by that, if you're writing about the pop, essentially art and pop stars, you're in some degree writing about race. Um, so you, the, the, a lot of it's actually you, you set the thing correctly in that way. Um, in terms of the conversations you have, I mean, at least part of it is that you end up. I said this is a really, really hard one to wrestle down because at least part of it is you come to. What I always say is we. Young Avengers is no more or less queer than the social group I was hanging out with when writing it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. As in the people, and and in Wick, and with Wickdiv, we are trying to write the world I find myself. You know, this is this is London I know, and it's London I love. So there's a lot of that being with people and seeing what they go through, and uh, reading lots and just talking casually about stuff. And you know, you know, and some of it is really when I know I'm actually knowing enough to know when you're in dangerous ground and that's when you really go and actually grab a friend and say really what do you make of this and especially the other part of it is you know um, the, le- the level of experience of an individual is going to be different from the- there's no such thing as a group experience you know what I mean as in like the individual mm-hmm. ex- I-, I think especially people can get scared of that concept as in you know because people have different opinions in, inside a group, and everyone everyone's mm-hmm. queer experience is different. Um, so I always bear that in mind as well. I mean, a lot of it is also writing about specific persons. There is that quote that I come back to a lot: "The problem with stereotypes is not that they are incorrect; it's they are incomplete." Uh, which is a quote I always think a lot about. You know, and there's definitely characters in Wicked. You know, if you if you were going to make a cruel reading of Lucy, she's an awful bisexual stereotype. You know, it, and no one's ever said that about Lucy. And that's because I've been yeah. written like that. You know, Lucy's a lot more than, you know, if you could, if you cherry picked her, you could completely argue she was that. And she's not. You know, she's a lot else. And you know, and she's, the reason she does things are her own. Um, so that's the sort of thing you bear in mind. Does that answer the yeah, question? Is this, is this the sort of thing you can write? Yes. I, I want to write books about. Um, but yeah, I, I'm glad that I I mostly get away with it. <laughs> I mean. Oh, no, completely. I mean, like, the one time I was really holding my breath was a case where I'm actually not the person who could tell you if it was okay or not, which was, which was, which was the segment episode. At oh, yeah. Year, sorry. My God. I mean, that's, uh, yeah, we, that, that's one we actually asked, we definitely asked to look at, and no one said anything, which is like, I mean, it's, it's weird about Sackman, as in Sackman is, to me, the most obviously problematic character in the entire book. Um, you know, she re- and 
and that's there's a reason why in, in the first issue we entirely bracket we, we bracketed her with Amaterasu in terms of like yes this is problematic it's at least part that this is the story we are doing here please go with us there, there is reasons mm-hmm. for this um so yeah I mean Sackman's the ones that terrified me but no one said anything about Sackman um does that, does that surprise you as much as me no, I I I was relieved. I would I would I was really scared. I didn't want to have to like publish a piece that was critical. <laughs> so I was very relieved. I also just have to say that you did such a good job. Like Brandon Brand being the artist on that was mm. such a great fit in terms of style. Oh my god! It's like it, it was one of the things that that's just magical. Oh yeah, obviously Brendan. And it's like the um oh I guess the, the physicality. I mean, something I was trying I was trying to do with that issue was. I spend a lot of time like thinking. About, I've got a cat, so I'm looking at my cat and like trying to get the sense of disconnectedness to it. The, the cats, you know, say "I love you" by blinking. So like, blinking is this metaphor. So we go from scene to scene without really caring. And of course, that, that's really about. Well, that's completely quote unquote being a cat. I've actually just some fingers here, which isn't helpful at all when I'm on the radio. Uh, <laughs> at the same no, time, this is really talking. This yeah. is really talking about Ruth's experience, and you know, the point of Ruth is. Uh, you know, this is somebody spending, if you spend your time saying you're not angry all the time, you probably are angry. You know, that that's kind of, you know, Sackman's, the entire point is like how she's frozen herself. And it, you know, Sackman's heartbreaking to me. Um, so, yeah, I know, but at the same time, it's, um, you know, as I said, you, 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 boil, you do the, the boil down what Sackman is. That can completely be, that, you know what I mean? If someone wants to do a hit piece on Wickbiv, in terms, you know, if they really just wanted to like start a fight, you completely do that. And all you've got to do is strip away everything that's interesting about the character. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I, worry, I worry about this stuff a lot. <laughs> and yeah. we just kind of, it's same like, you know, it's same with Amaterasu. You know, we know the reasons we're doing it. We think we've got it carefully. We think we've thought it through carefully. Uh, we hope that people like, will, you know, understand our intent is good as much as it can be. Uh, not that the intent particularly matters. But yeah, you think it through a lot. And so I always say to writers, and writers are really worried a lot about everything because writers are neurotic. Um, but it's that kind of like people, if you're the sort of person who is thinking about having a conversation with someone about the work to check that you've got something right, you probably, chances are you'd probably be okay. And I wouldn't, you know, there's always, mistakes generally happen when somebody doesn't ask somebody. You know, I think you just assume you've got it right. I mean, like every time. I mean, every time I've, I've approached, I've got somebody to read stuff for a reason to do with this. Any corrections they've suggested are corrections we would have done anyway. You know what I mean? As and we were already thought, oh yeah. yeah, that's just not, that's turned out wrong. I mean, there was um, uh, uh, um, my, uh, the off trans consultant, for example. Uh, she uh, the issue five, the whole which was obviously that was a really loaded issue anyway, involving like Lucy and Cass having the thing and there was a, on the front page you know Lucy's uh, doodling on the post of Tara uh, and originally I just you know because she did a, a bit she did a moustache and a beard on Tara and of course this is just sort yeah. of thing people doodle on beards uh, you know that sort of thing people doodle on like pictures but of course right. stepping back and looking at the context of the issue oh no no this changes this really in the context of the transphobia later that underlies that implies something else about Lucy and what Lucy's use of transphobic is a slightly different thing from uh, actually just being really, really virulently transphobic in an apod self. So we were going to change that anyway, mm-hmm. but that was something that, you know, Abigail immediately picked up on. Um, 
But yeah, does that does it make sense? Yeah, that's super helpful. Um, and you know, I also think that the point of people needing to talk to more than one person, even like you get some weird reads sometimes when that doesn't happen too. Yeah, it's tricky. Um, I mean, you know, but sometimes it's, you, you also don't want people who are essentially your friends to be feel like you're solely using, you know, drilling them for information. <laughs> Kind of, yeah, although uh, I have to say, have... I want people to drill me for information, like, please, uh... especially given, like, there's so many people writing so many terrible, like, bisexual characters and women, and it's just terrifying. So, thank you. It's nice to not have to hold my breath while I'm reading some. I mean, that really is what it is. Like, oh, at least when it comes to the demographics that are relating to me, like, when I'm reading your stuff, I don't have to hold my breath about how I will be represented, and that's a huge thing. Thank you. I thought, you know, feeling, feeling, the, the more aware you become of actually how horrifying some experiences can be for people, that how it becomes increasingly possible to read media that doesn't, you know, which is, that, that's the moment you just thought, it's the moment you wince, and that the feeling of safety in fiction should be just there, you know what I mean? This is, ent- this is entertainment, you know, the idea of like, mm-hmm. yeah. The, the power of feeling that's actually how often you describe reading a good book you know I feel I am safe hands as in you know I will trust this creator to take me where they're going to take me and when somebody breaks that contract in a way in, in a way that you've sort of said Alana that's kind of like <laughs> that is you know does that, make, that is definitely uh, yeah I worry about that a lot mate, as well it's all about worrying worrying so much I'm actually quite happy at the moment because <laughs> <laughs> we care and I yeah. want to actually ask you, I don't feel like I've ever heard anybody talk with you about the invention of Sarah and Angela. Mm. And I just want to say, like, and I've written about this, like, Sarah is, like, the main Marvel female character that I've related to, like, ever, which is, I think, oh. interesting that it's a character who didn't get invented until, like, I guess about a year and a half ago or so. Um and, you know, it's also, like, a trans woman who is, a, like, brown, but not, like, it's hard to say exactly what because she's from another planet or mm-hmm. realm or whatever have you. I, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about creating Sarah. Like, what made you decide that Angela needed a bard and why her and all that other stuff? Well, basically, we just wanted to rip off Cena. Uh, so, mm-hmm. um, I don't, it's like Angela is so hard, you know, as a person. There's a kind of like, and the entire point is she is not very good at emotions. She's not very good at expressing things. She has this system of rules that she has to live by and she doesn't really like, but she feels she has to live by. And for me, like trying to, a lot of what I wanted, to, at least I wanted to do with Angela was to make her awkward. In that kind of, she's not just like a Wonder Woman figure and she's not like particularly likable even all the time. Um, I think, you know, because for me, it's, there's no point in just making another character like somebody else. They've got to be, you've got to find a niche for them. And Angela to be this kind of almost like opposite of Loki, this creature of law and whatever, and you know, and how awful it is to be trapped in it. Yeah, for me, the feeling that you're trapped into either side a system of like rules and regulations you can't really control, but they're somehow important to you. Um, that's something I can empathize with. That's, you know, what I mean, I, for writing a character, I've got to find something at least I connect with. However, if you do all of that, um, but you're sort of messed up, aren't you? <laughs> it's because, you know, uh, mm-hmm. you need other people around it to do, like, some of the emotional work, you know, and some of the, and some things to show that Angela can care about things, you know, and some things that make Angela open up. And for me, that, especially that first arc when I was writing the lead story, it's, uh, there's bits where Angela's just obviously terrified that she's going to lose Sarah again. And it's leading up towards the, she doesn't want the idea, she knows she's being tricked by somebody, but by, by this, by Malkef, 
you know, she knows this and she doesn't want to believe, she would rather believe this lie for a while longer. Um, so there's, there's at least that part of it. But also, so Sarah has to be everything that Angela, and Sarah has to be delightful. You know, Sarah has to be, you know, uh, all the other, so everything that makes Angela open up. And for me, it's very important to put them together and show how this relationship works. I mean, when I was creating her, um, uh, that's the same. Um, it, it kind of a lot of it came from. I mean, we sort of came. Sarah is. I'm really sorry. It's quite late here, therefore I'm not really at my best. It seems, but Sarah kind of came from three places. After we had that kind of vague purpose, I kind of like looked at the world of the angels in terms of that's already set up in the Marvel universe, and thought, okay, this is really an interesting universe to do a story about a gender transition because actually they, they, these completely different roles, what male and female are societally done. This is a really so that mm-hmm. I that part of identity was like me looking at the world and doing that, and her sexuality is very much from Marguerite, and uh, her ethnicity is very much from uh, Phil, you know, because uh, I kind of like I left, from what from Phil. Uh, Phil Herman is the artist. Oh, uh, I love him. Yeah, he's amazing. I mean, he's like I, I loved him ever since The Invisibles. He was like one of my early art crushes when I got into comics. Um, so that's kind of well, he I drew a female character who's neither fat nor thin, and there's like nobody who's built like her, basically. It's fantastic. I, I, I do love what he I love what he did, and that's kind of especially with Angela and a lot of my work for higher stuff now. It, I, I try to leave enough space the to, to be co-created. You know what I mean? As in, I, mm-hmm. I, I kind of did say to Marguerite early on, it's like I I would be entirely fine if their friendship was merely platonic. You know, I think a close female friendship is also a powerful thing. But, you know, and we, of course, we know the way it went. <laughs> you know, uh, but that's kind of the idea. It's genu- you know, Sarah is genuinely co-created between the, the three of us. Well, thank you. For mm. sure. No, no, I'm so glad. It's like, it means a lot that people, um, and, you know, and I got, especially after the end of the first arc, um, I got, I did get like, most people were willing to go with me, but I did get some like concerned males about it, uh, and understandably so. Um, so yeah, and I, I did spend some time talking to people about, and you know, trying to set their minds at rest and all that kind of thing. Huh? What were they concerned about? Well, it's uh, a trans woman ending up in hell. Uh, that that would be oh, one. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, and the point is, I get you. Uh, these conversations are very, you know, and I talked, you know, quite silly. And one of the things uh, someone uh, someone put, it's like. When a community is so used to seeing that um, a character, when we are so used to seeing ourselves treated like something, because uh, it's very, it's very quite difficult to read a story where they're treated like that. Despite, you know, the entire point of Sarah is we love her. You know, that, that's the meaning of the whole story. You know what I mean? And, and of course, mm-hmm. the assumption that if you do something, you know, you know what I mean. And so, yeah, that is definitely yeah. the sort of. And I was aware of that, and that's why I did kind of. It was it's a push and pull between okay, I'm gonna have to play do as much as I can to show this is not the story you're telling and Sarah's you know lean into it enormously and set it well in advance and lots of other different things like that and also by implication, Angela's gonna go and rescue her, you know that's the, that's the really big important thing. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. uh, but at the same time, you know I kind of when you know people people say hypersensitive and it's not you know it's a ludicrous thing when when your life is involves seeing this so much and it's so personal and it's happened again and again and again. That's not hypersensitive. That's, you know, that's just, that's a natural response to a world you, which is utterly horrible. Um, yes, yeah, thank you. you know that's I mean? a great response to that. Yeah. But at the same time, especially with Sarah, it was like kind of, it's like if we didn't, 
since this was the, the only real, since Sarah's like identity came after the, the core of the story and the, the need to have her, this is an object either we put uh, someone like Sarah right at the heart of Andrew's story, we don't. And in that case, it was like, well, I think if we if we can get past this this bit and try to actually sell and explain and hope this works, it's worth the cost because we put this woman right in the heart of this of Angela's life. You know what I mean? It's, it's a rare chance to. This makes perfect sense to have a character like this, you know. And we should take this with both hands and work out a way to get it through it. You know, Margaret's done astounding things with Sarah. Yeah, I have a question. I feel like she's really your heir to mm. to your particular approach at Marvel, actually. She's like, honestly, between her and Al, you know, um, uh, I wouldn't say Al, Al, Al's got his own completely, you know, doing, both of them are very, I stress, both of them are doing entirely their own things as well. But, you know, I can see they play so well with stuff which I was doing in their own way. And, you know, and they're both close friends and I love them intensely. So I, I've got a question. Um, a lot of uh, your indie work, a lot of it, like, has to do with pop culture in general. Um, it usually feels like a kind of a meta exploration of, of various aspects of it. You know, what drives you or what interests you exploring that in comics, which, you know, using pop culture to discuss pop, pop culture? Uh, I'm basically uh, a creature made of pop culture Dietrich. You know, it's, I sort of joke. It's, um, <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, you know, what, what do gaming make salmon out of? Well, I make it, you know, the great works of all literature ever. I make my my magic out of knicky B sides because <laughs> that, that's essentially what what you know cut me and I bleed that stuff. Um, I just find this kind of I I, I find it very fascinating. There's a kind of bastardized ballad quote, uh, which me and Jim Rosenold, the, uh, the gentleman I co-write Ludocrats with, um, we we quote this back and forth, and we have for like about fifteen years now. Stay true to your obsessions, and your obsessions will stay true to you. Uh, the actual quote is much longer and better written because it is Ballard. Uh, but the general point is what we take from that in terms of like, if you find it interesting, pursue that interest intensely and like, don't be afraid and don't let double question. And the question like the pop culture stuff is kind of trashy. You know, uh, you know, and I, I read you, I read you big literature and the stuff that people respect, but I don't need to fight that corner. You know, I, I, as, yeah. as a human being, I tend to fight uphill as in like, you know, I, I my main, Defining obsessions have been video games, comics, and pop music. Fundamentally, things which are disrespectful or disrespected, and that's great. And I, I, I will lean into that, and I will love that. I mean, I kind of um, there's a, why is phonogram uh, sorry, wait to this kind of an actual genre story that can occasionally splits apart at the seams because we try to cram too much into it. Phonogram is a literary story trying to pass as a, a genre story. You know, it's like phonogram really it, it isn't. You know, it's, it, it's like if it can hold itself in a certain way and feel a certain thing, uh, maybe people think we're actually a, a real genre story. <laughs> and, you know, we, you know, a phonogram isn't. It just isn't. Um, but why do we have all these trappings of genre? Uh, surely it would be much better to do it as a straight literary story. Um, yeah. And the reason is because pop, pop music is fundamentally disreputable. If we, by doing, you know, we are using genre for its literary purpose to actually make what pop music feels like. As in, taking, I don't know, Mamma Mia by ABBA seriously is both something I believe intensely, but also realise it's kind of something that's intrinsically ludicrous. Um, <laughs> and that by making phonogram both of those things simultaneously, we kind of are close to being pop music. So in other words, doing phonogram as a literary story would be a betrayal of it. 
Um, so yeah, that, that's that's a very overwrought example of like why I, I am obsessed over pop culture. Um, so you know, I'm a big um, leveler in terms of like you know, my love of Dostoevsky is exactly the same as my love of Kanicki. We also got a question from Twitter uh, from Cam, who is listening while doing his homework on his school-only iPad, so he's breaking the rules. Uh, but he's got a question about, um, do you plan on running another line of shirts or merchandise for Wicked Divine? Almost certainly we'll do something. I mean, like, we keep up, we we do like quite a lot for um, shows, like one-off stuff. And in the <laughs> long term, we would like to find out a way to like just get a web shop and do it kind of like available, like, you know, have a, have a range of stuff and get them out. So eventually one day we'll be organized enough to do that. Don't know when that's going to happen or if it's ever going to happen. We are very sucky. Um, we, at the moment, we're trying to talk about whether we're going to do a T-shirt for um, Emerald City, which is our next big American con. We're doing that in April. Uh, we've got an idea for a T-shirt, uh, which we may do. Uh, and we're moment trying to worry is like our hardback also comes out of that con. So we're kind of worried about, are we going to have too much expensive stuff on our table? And then we'll just be stuck with a load of stuff. Um, I think inevitably we'll be doing more T-shirts. We want to do a poster at some point. That's the thing. We want something, a big teenage, um, a big poster for teenagers' bedrooms. That's the kind of like, I, I had one as a teenager. I want to give one. <laughs> um, That's perfect. Yeah, and, yeah. and, you know, we joke, we also, we always say, we should do a board game. And we have no idea what a Wicked board game would be. A bit like, kind of Cluedo with sex with my kind of immediate thought. Uh, but who would <laughs> Wow, that's amazing. Actually, speaking of teens and a teen emailing us and all that, I, I mean, I really think one of the things that you do better than anyone is write teen voices. And, I mean, it's easy for me to say that because I'm not a teenager, but it seems like <laughs> teenagers also agree that you do a good job of that. Uh, and you're very, very active in social media spaces, especially like Tumblr. And Tumblr is a very, like, young and female and queer space. And I was just sort of wondering, like, what is the role of Tumblr in your process, actually, as a writer? Um, and, and how do have those conversations contributed to how you write young people? Wow. That's an interesting question. Uh, I'm never like, firstly, thank you. <laughs> uh, so like, I, I'm always, I, I remember being utterly petrified writing um, the, uh, the Singles Club because the half the cast are like 1920. And Phonogram is a book that um, is so intense about the correctness of the knowledge. It's like it's not, writing teenagers and young Avengers is easier than doing those kids in Singles Club because those mm. kids could be a little bit. Whilst Singles Clubs work specifically, these are obsessive nineteen-year-olds. You know, the, the level of specific signifier and semiotics had to be so precise there. Uh, so, but as a more general thing. I don't know. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot of my general rules. I think I maybe remember what it was like to be a teenager better than some people. Uh, that's like part of it. And I and I, I take those emotions quite seriously. And a lot. And a way we, despite my experience of pop music now being different than it was then, I can sort of I can trace the passage of time there. Interestingly, um, that's at least part of it. In terms of the Tumblr, you just see stuff. You talk to people. This is kind of almost like. Um, You know, it's like you know, I said earlier in terms of like the diversity question, age is a diversity issue too. That might be that might be a good way of putting it. Mm-hmm. So in terms of like the your exposure to people and like how you hang around, being on Tumblr and seeing what people talk about, that's you know, that's important and useful. Of course how people write is different to how they talk. But um in terms of like write, writing from the inside out, 
you know, when people put this stuff out there, you go, okay, I can see, you know, I see this is on your mind at the moment and what that is a response to, etc. I mean, I also, there's a quote from a, I remember seeing this quote in Callis Talk, I think it was, one of the magazines I used to write for, but the whole, the whole steady lead singer. I think it's like, I think it was something like, I think I, I, I think I feel like, it was like, it was like why do you always like do about teenagers? Why, why are your songs about being teenage? And he says, I think I understand what what I was feeling as a teenager now better as a thirty seven year old than I did when I was a sixteen year old. I didn't pretty much subject, I didn't understand anything at all about myself when I was sixteen. I was just like running on fumes. And I, part of me gets that as well. I don't think I had a clue when I, about myself when I was a teenager. And I think that kind of um the the I don't know, some of those emotions feel quite close to the surface for me, and I think that's what I tap. And if you kind of write from the inside out, the voices are kind of like, I like to think the voices are kind of surface almost. If you kind of, if you get the feelings right, the rest of it almost doesn't matter. But I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not convinced I write good teenagers. So. <laughs> well, a lot of young people on Tumblr are, so that's Yes, they are. I mean, many people are very kind. Um, one of, speaking of young people in the future of comics, I, one of the, the concerns that people like us who want the comics industry to survive and grow and, have, and you know continue to have art that we can purchase, uh, is, uh, there seems to be this tendency towards what you would actually have labeled in phonogram as retromancy. Um, the, the, <laughs> the idea that right, the idea that everything that was from before is good and we need to bring it back. And I think that's different from enjoy, enjoying art that is old is not the same as trying to bring it back, um, mm. you know. And I was I just know to me to what extent you feel comfortable talking about like dealing with comics industry tendency to want to make everything like the way it used to be versus taking a risk on something new and moving forward. But that's something that you're certainly doing in your own work. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know I get it. I mean, I even I have. I certainly have an advantage, I think, on some writers of the American mainstream in that I did, I'm not a comics lifer. You know, and, and the comics I read as a kid in Britain were not... Um, uh, the American comics I read as a kid in Britain were basically anthologies. So basically we had 1960s and comics like the first run of X-Men in the same comic as Machine Man from the 1970s in the same comic as 1980s Spider-Man. So you had, and we had all those stories happening at the same time, and we had no idea how they tied together. So it's very, the idea of what a new comic was was kind of different for me. <laughs> um, and I fell out of comics in my teenage years. So in other words, when I come to the the American mainstream to write the stuff, I don't really have any nostalgic connection to bringing things back. A, and probably it's like, and I'm, and even then I've done it a few times. I mean, I brought back Death's Head, who was a character from Transformers, uh, and I've used him quite a bit. And I must admit, I've had a lot of people who are about my age come in and say, oh, it's so good to see Death's Head back, and that makes me feel queasy. You know, for exactly the same <laughs> reasons you're talking about. In terms of, yeah, I, I did it for, I thought it was a giggle. But, but um, you know, and I sort of question that sort of response. But yeah, I know it's... I, I disagree. Yeah. I, I, talking aesthetic, I have problems with the idea of just bringing stuff back to the status quo you had when you had a kid. Um, you know what I mean? And I, and I agree with that. At the same time, me and Jamie, you can only kind of do as much as you can with it. I mean, the books that people rip off aren't the kind of the retro books. The books that people end up ripping off. I mean, ripping off. I tend to use ripping off rather than inspired. I feel ripping off because it seems more honest. <laughs> I actually wow. mean it in a quite positive way. You know, ripping off is the natural progression of all art. 
um, yeah, me and Jamie are young Avengers. Our aim was, one of the things we sort of said was, let's do a comic book imagining that Kirby never existed. Um, you know, but the idea of, okay, actually the other way to put it was, imagine doing all the classic Avengers stories without having read them. It's like, so we actually, wow. we, and people kind of miss them. Like the first arc is just, the whole stuff of Mother is just doing Ultron. You know, this is a creature, uh, a creature created by a member by his best intentions and then goes out of control and becomes his arch enemy. So as Mother is to, Mother is to Billy as Ultron was to Hank Pym. Uh, the Cree Skull War was basically the jokey throwaway thing with the kind of the, um, the, the, the people skiffle couple turning to be uh, scrolls and so on and so on. Even the fact that Miss America isn't actually inspired by Captain America but is actually a one analogue. That's my inspiration. That's my homage. The idea of the first arc of Young Avengers, uh, but the whole and also stuff like every issue we do, we'd never repeat a uh, stylistic formalist device. So every issue we did a fight scene in a completely different way. So all of Young Avengers about the concept of let's do new stuff. So like you know, I very much hung my flag on that. Um, and you know, and uh, and I don't think many, and there's definitely some people who have been inspired by Young Avengers. I think Young Avengers was probably too weird to be inspired by too much. But, you know, the one which everyone was inspired by was Hawkeye. You know, Hawkeye, you know, moved the dial in lots of interesting ways. You know, and it's like Daredevil. You know, da- you know Daredevil is a less radical book than I think Hawkeye is. Um, but at the same time, it's certainly not a retread of, like, um, the last 30 years of, like, Frank Miller, like, yeah. playing. And that's, that, you know, what people really take is the new. You know, and occasionally the retro can be incredibly powerful, uh, but it's also transitory. Retro is transitory. That's interesting. I, I have somebody who's always loved retro everything literally my entire life, but I view that as a bug and not a feature, you know? Oh, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, what do you mean by retro, by retro being transitory? Um, as in... Like it gets you from... Any future you built upon retro only works by the way that the retro has become not retro. And by which I mean is, here's a good example. When I went to one of my friends, actually the guy I based shambles around from a phonogram, we went to a mid noughties revival uh, indie club. And of course, that's you know, so I'm laughing at it because the idea of doing a mid noughties <laughs> revival is just like laughable. But for him, this is obviously formative music. This is the equivalent of me going to a Britpop club in 96. Sorry, me going to a Britbox right. club in 2006, and he was freaking right. out. And he was like, this all sounds the same. Uh, but the bit I got was like how much of 2006 it sounded like. Because all these, so many of these bands basically were trying to do the Gang of Four guitar sound. And because it doesn't sound like the Gang of Four. It sounds like 2006. Because you cannot strip the politics away from the Gang of Four. You cannot strip a lot of the sound quality, lots of other stuff socially. And it ends up sounding like 2006. Um, what, so in other words, what I mean by transitory is if you're doing a straight, A, your ability to do a straight reboot is impossible because <laughs> you end up creating something new by default because you because due to the fact you're creating retro works in a world that's different. Um, that's like partially. And if you don't, and you solely, and you don't manage to capture some of the zeitgeist in your revivalisms, uh, the book just dies. You know, you can get everyone go, oh, I'm excited that XYZ is back. And then that's it. You just get that kind of pop. So that's what I mean by I mean, it. either retro is transformed into non-retro or retro is like just transitory gas. And the other piece that people seem to forget is all the old things that we love are still there. We don't have to remake them. We can just access them. Mm. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, that's, that, 
across the last 15 years, that's uh, becoming a culture that is uh, able to do that. You know, that that's just a, a given, and that's the world that. I mean, I mean, I'm a little older than you, Alana, but the um, I, I was at the last stage when there was an assumption that you would have listened to all pop music ever. You know, you could just about be an expert on you. People kind of forgiving the fifth. Forgiving 50s, early 60s, anything from Beatles onwards, if you are a serious music fan of, of my quote-unquote type, you expect to know it all from 60s, mm-hmm. 70s, 80s, to, my, to me coming into the early 90s. And you could hold that in a store in your head. But the second we went past that, it got increasingly unimportant. And it, when essentially you got access to everything that's around ever, you cover, it becomes a kaleidoscope. You know, it's just to, all the history is available in this, you know, this postmodern modern soup and everything is sampling from everything else. And you cannot ha- know it all. And if you cannot know it all, you're suddenly free, and you're free from history, um, or at least you get a chance to like take a very different form of history course. Uh, and that's what I mean when people say the end of history. What they actually mean is the end of you know grand narratives. And if you talk about it in terms of pop music and pop culture, um, you know we're definitely past the end of history, I think. And that's partially to do with the accessibility to all all the old things. And that I, you know that was all coming off the top of my head. I had no idea where I was going there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I typed the word yes with several S's after it because I completely subscribe to this. I mean, it's something for folk, our generation, and, and certainly older, to like just check ourselves on, right? Mm. Um, we make a lot of assumptions about like what does it mean if someone has never like actually heard the Beatles, and well, actually, if what they've heard instead is some completely pivotal music from a different culture or country that we don't have any familiarity with, like, why do we think that we get to dictate what is important and what isn't? Exactly. It's one of the, I mean, when I was a video games critic, it, people were, how, how could you have never played XYZ major game on Nintendo? I mean, and I was like, well, I was playing a lot of other things. <laughs> you know? It's like, uh, just, canon is ultimately stupefying, because it, I mean, me as a critic and also me as a writer, I get so much stuff from like listening widely, and, you know, and then drawing connections between. I'm very much a wide rather than deep, like cultural guy. In terms, of, I will take from as many different genres and places, and then sort of see connections between very far off distant things, rather than the sort of person who enjoys mining deep in a narrow way. Um, and for me, okay, at least for me, I think I find that much more useful because it gives you. It, it, for me, it, I like. I tend to think it leads to more novelty and, in, and understanding of a wider, you know. A, a wider fragment rather than a very narrow blinkered experience of art. Wow, this is awesome. Like, this is gold. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is like my, these are things that interest me. Um, Brett, I know you had, we had like one other question from Twitter I want to make sure that we get into before I just talk everybody. But. Yeah, I mean, this one's also from Sam. Um, I mean, I'm going to kind of go with a slight twist on it. So one of the, the I think, most talked about moments in comics last year uh, was Wicked Divine issue, I think, 13, um, which obviously played a lot with readers, you know, emotional states. Um, and it seems something that, you know, we have no problem with doing. Um, you know, how does it feel as a writer kind of to, to see that reaction from readers uh, to you know something that you write, and is there points that you get in the to writing being like, oh, this is really going to set people off or get people crying or screaming out loud? You know, it, you know, as a writer, is that crossing your mind when you create stuff? Yeah, I don't know. It's like I think I had a, a weird turning point in my in me as a writer. I mean, I, I've always played hardball, 
I mean, I'm aware that you know when I came into comics, like I, was, I did the big Bible for Uber, my World War Two comic, uh, and that has really these very big beats where you build something up and then destroy it. But my kind of my turning point was like Journey into Mystery, and as much as I, I often kind of thought people thought I was a cold writer before, it's because my characters tend to be uh, use ironic distance and try to hide behind masks a lot. I mean, my characters are quite often liars. Um, with Journey to Mystery, due to writing Loki, he was, you know, kid Loki was incredibly sweet and lovable and whatever, and a kid, and was an incredible liar, but at the same time, he was a kid. So he had to wear his emotions near the surface. Leah, his best friend, was also a kid. I mean, she had a completely different set of masks, but it was all still kind of allowing me to be a bit more emotional. Um, and this led to a point where I killed Leah off. Um... And I kill in this way. I've set up for all along. And in retrospect, their entire friendship appears to be really, really very sad and tragic. And the internet exploded. You know, the Journey to Mystery fans weeped and cried. And it was like, and I felt terrible. <laughs> I mean, I, I knew it. And I, I wrote this in the pitch all the way back in issue one. And this is like 19 issues into the run. It was, mm. um, and I was like, this must be what Josh Whedon feels like all the time. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and I, I told uh, told my wife this, Chrissy, and uh, she said, you must feel pretty happy. I'm like, no, I don't. And I wrote this big, you can Google it, it's like notes on Journey to Mystery 639 or something. 629, maybe? No, 639. And it's like me trying to work for the things. What on earth does writers, why do writers want to do this to people? You know, well, what perverse thing makes them think that, oh yeah, you being really upset is going to be good for you. Uh, and it is. We do. We believe that. And this idea that... Um, this is a useful way to process our feelings about humans. And as horrible as fiction is, fiction is safe compared to reality. You know, <laughs> that's like kind of the worst thing. The idea of like us, us flirting with grief and horror and excitement and passion and death uh, via fiction is infinitely more pleasurable than, you know, burying people you really love. Um, so, yeah, that might be it. Um, wow. The other part of it might just be the... Um, uh, that if we're going to write about life, we're also writing about death. You know, we're writing about what the experience of life is, and that big kind of like uh, the pit, if you to quote, you know, Baphomet and um, Morrigan. You know, that that's there as well. So the idea of like flirting with these experiences in a relatively safe environment, and we don't have to consummate let. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think that's powerful because it goes to the heart of us, and that's why people care. I guess. I mean, the thing is, I kind of hope that people... I think the main thing about Wicked is when we got past issue... I'm actually quite confident of us getting to the end and being okay. Because issue five I was worried about because we've just killed Lucifer. And it's like, everyone loves Lucifer. So the, Jamie wrote me an email immediately after that fit, the first issue came out. It's like, are you worried about killing our, first, our best character off in issue five? And I was like, yes, yes, I am. Maybe though everyone will stop reading. <laughs> and though we didn't. And then, of course, we're going to do it again in issue 11. <laughs> it's that kind of like... And it's like, we were very aware people could just stop reading the book and issue 11. <laughs> and, we like, and we've had a few, but generally speaking, everyone was incredibly excited by it because they had, what on earth, what on earth are they doing? Uh, and then we've got all the way to commercial suicide, which is weird and experimental. And everyone seems to be okay and sales are fine still. You know, we called it commercial suicide literally because we're thinking it could just crash at this point. And all the yeah. way through, and people have gone with us. And that fact that they've gone with us through all this, it's like, oh, good, they'll... You know, they have faith in us. And we, the fact we know we are doing it for a good reason <laughs> means me kind of like, oh, right, we, we, we're fine. People trust us. And you know, we kind of come back to what we were saying earlier about diversity. 
if pe if people think they are in a safe pair of hands that people care about this and they have faith in trust in the creators of the, of the work they'll they'll go anywhere with you and the second you've lost that you you're fucked <laughs> you, you know it's interesting because i mean everybody i knew like the internet exploded when when persephone died of course i was like of course persephone died persephone dies that's what persephone does in mythology and for me like i had a much more even though i love i love that character she's wonderful i i had a much more um emotional response to the end of phonogram where nobody actually dies and mm. somebody becomes whole my meant my emotional response to the phonogram was like, oh my god, I'm old. I'm not going to get to see my clubbing friends again because I and I don't right. I don't because I am old. Yeah. Um, and that you sort of like killed off phonogram, which is very much generationally aligned with us, I think. And in this place, of course, is Wixit, where everybody's younger than us, like by significant quantities. Um, so I was mourning myself more than I was ready to mourn somebody else. I know what you mean. It's like kind of like. Um... Phonogram, of course, being a, a far less successful book commercially than um, Wick did, does mean that you kind of you, you don't get the kind of like the fandomonium around it. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I think you know the response I got from issue six was very powerful, as in what people have told me about it, um, uh, and the kind of the personal messages people have said, and the, and the people who've written about it. Um, yeah, it's like especially people like people have we we stuck the ending. And that's what I kind of said, and it's kind of it feels really sad, and that's kind of what it is. It's like um, the first half of phone of Immaterial Girl was kind of designed to. My God, we're going deep into spoilers here, people. But the first half, it kind of feels like Rubitania. This is kind of like a, this is a fun adventure. This is an adventure. We've got a, here's a bad guy, quote unquote, and here's a good guy. Oh, we're going to go save Emily, and then we halfway through we go completely to somewhere else that appears to be unconnected. Then we link it back to it, and issue five is about kind of like a, a watch winding down. That's kind of the feeling of, you know, like a record being put on increasingly slow speeds. And that's kind of how the, the last two issues feel. And then there's a sort of a, a dread momentum that this is going to stop. Uh, and that was what I was trying to evoke. And when you get to the end, that's, that's kind of there. You get to this like five pages of Emily and Cole just talking. And I originally wrote that quite more upbeat than it ended up being. Because I wrote, because I, I just loved those two characters, and they they chatted away, and it was fun, and they were quite happy. And Chrissy, said my editor, she was, um, you know, what, why is it this upbeat? And it was like, and it, it was like she was right, and of course I broke, I I loved the characters that much, I wanted them to have a slightly happier ending. <laughs> and in actual fact, and I, I I removed some of the jokes, and I left some pauses in there, you know, the bits in the conversation where things would get stilted, and that kind of like. Small changes like Emily was originally kind of like quite happy that Cole had found someone he was in love with, and I tr I changed that to be a bit more ambivalent to it, a bit more you know the you sick of me was originally said with a bit more affection, you know what I mean? And it gets mm -hmm. sadder, and it, and it was like and it was really good editing. Chrissy is, Chrissy really helped the book there, um, but yeah, it's sad. It's really sad, and the idea that you know um, that it was one of those original ideas I had. I mean, Material Girl, I had the idea really, like, all the way back in 2004 or whatever it was. But in terms of the specific execution, it only really came into focus in terms of, like, in 2009, when it was the juxtaposition of Plan B and Michael Jackson's end, um, and very specifically Lady Gargoyle's paparazzi. Um, and the idea of a girl singing I'll follow you until I love you to, to herself in a mirror um, after going through all this shit struck me as, like, really as sad as it gets. Um, but yeah, I'm glad you found it powerful. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and it definitely, like, wrecked me. But, I mean, that happening so close with Bowie dying was just, I had to. I yeah, that was crazy. Cre- that was weird. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also, you know, I guess. Oh. Yeah, I mean, the B-side as well, being about, you know, being fairly centric on Bowie. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I just couldn't. uh like that, that whole thing, that whole period is really creepy. <laughs> you know, this is sort of you find yourself thinking. This is kind of like why um, why Alan Moore ends up as Alan Moore, you know, or, or Grant Morrison. You have too many of these experiences, and you start thinking you actually control reality. When I know I don't control anything. <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, I've read. I wrote him on my phonogram with you that you discussing phonogram made my phone spontaneously begin playing for whom the bell tolls. So like just to prove a point about, like, how on phonogram my musical taste could be. <laughs> um, so, but, yeah, I mean, th- I think that that was a whole moment of just a lot of things that were very important to folks culminating around the same time and in an interesting way. Um, yeah, and I think that those coincidences happening when they did, I think, also helps bring a level of meaning to the readers as well. And, and like I said, I think it's probably useful for building, helping the kids I know I shouldn't care whether or not they care about Bowie, but I can't help myself, and I do. And like this is, yeah, these are things that help transmit those stories, I think, as well. Yeah, you know what I'm worried about. I mean, I have, I have part of me worried about in phonogram is that whilst it's a gateway to certain people to music, there is the worry that oh, you, you know, it's exactly the worry that Emily uses to, to scour. Sorry, Claire uses to scour Cole in issue two of Immaterial Girl. Oh yeah, you're kind of a restauranter, aren't you, Cole? You know, they, and the point is that you know, Cole. It, the met, through the metaphor, it's basically so many people care about what I do because I've basically sold my love of Britpop to them. And of people I talk to, oh yeah, I've got into, you know, I, I met um, a Young Avengers reader who I, I've met a few times. I met her like, she must have been, she must have been 14. She was wearing a, a Kate Bishop cosplayer. She was delightful. But now she's like, you know, doing A-levels and she's into the Manic Street Preachers and she's got into the Manics because of whatever. Mm. And I'm like, I feel kind of guilty. I said, no, no, I, I, oh no, I'm, I've infected you with my taste. And that kind of does make me as a retromancer. And it's like, I, I, and I just kind of hope that I'm not, I don't think I gain power from that, but I'm also aware that I, I hope mm. I'm not all, you know, but over worrying about stupid things is kind of phonogram, I guess. <laughs> But I think it's a good thing. Like I spent, I chose to seek out old pop culture my whole like life by choice, and I always appreciated having older people like help me figure things out. And and you know you 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 yeah you've given her something awesome that she wouldn't have had access to otherwise, and you didn't tell her not to listen to Kendrick Lamar. So you know. Okay. <laughs> but she did seem to really like the Manic, so that's fine. And it's she's into the Holy Bible, which is the best one, so that's fine. Oh, noted. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's actually this is sort of a jump back you know I know when you do it three you did a ton of academic research around the history of that time period and the you know there's a lot of mythological research that you guys have done in creating Wictiv did you have hmm. a particular methodology around that are there, are there particular texts that you turned to uh, I was I must admit I put there is quite a bit of research, much less than for free, because it's a lot. Because plus, it's a lot about the interpretations of the gods and actually how they intersect with culture at the time in the, of the pantheons. So, it was, it, put another way, it's about the pop stars as much as it's about the gods. That's the kind of that's one way of putting it. So, it's about the intersections between those ideas. Um, but yes, there's some research. Um, 
I delivered, I put one big rabbit hole for if people wanted to go down it, which was the Robert Graves, the White Goddess, uh, which is name checked in issue nine, almost as a dare. But yeah, that that kind of there is various bits of theory that Graves made up or researched, depending how kind you want to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, Graves is far from like um, Graves is interesting rather than academic, I think. Uh, I mean, speaking of somebody who who isn't like enormously like rigorous, in fact, I think putless, I think Graves would probably approve of Wicked <laughs> in some awful way in terms of uh, his uh, his poetry. But yeah, that that kind of that's the one I've mentioned. I, I would rather mention any other specific research in the book as and when it comes. I mean, the great joy of Cassandra as the character is that I can make her bring up if I want to name drop something academic, she can. You know, and if I want to, the point. The point. Me mentioning the white goddess at that point is showing my hand, in terms of like this is the stuff I was thinking about. In other words, it's kind of telling you where I am going. Uh, so me mentioning specifically the sort of texts I'm going, you know, I, I wouldn't want really, to trust the white goddess is the big one. So <laughs> um, I've sort of given most of my cards. Um, you know, I know that a couple of people I've seen on Tumblr, like they, they really, really dumped it, jumped into mythological research because of their engagement with Wiktiv. And I then on the that. other side of it, you know, you have people who really jump into research around like music based on, based on phonogram or based on Wiktiv even depending. Um, I think people can have different launching pads from that. It is interesting. I mean, it's like, I find it that the fandom, at least in my experience, the actual like the Tumblr fandom seems to lean more into the gods a bit. And the actual, um, and like the the out of Tumblr fandom leans more into the pop stuff a bit, as in like the, the sort of thing, the writing they tend to lean on, which I find very interesting. Um, but yeah, I, I, listen, there's a level of wicked that we kind of created something that was that it's, it's almost like a uh, it's a device that it's a book about fandom that was kind of designed to have its own fandom. As in, there's a lot of stuff that if I was going to get into a comic, I would be into. You know, there's a lot of like things. Oh yeah, it's a book that you can get obsessive over. In the same way, phonogram was in a different way. Um, so it's kind of fascinating to watch people recreate the book in their own minds for their own purposes, which is of course entirely the point of it. It's like when people started doing fan art of themselves as gods. Yeah, that's kind of that. Yeah, yeah, we've won here. That's what we wanted. And it's kind of the um, you know with the gods, we're doing cosplay, and the cosplay of the gods is. So we see people doing the costumes in the books perfectly. But at the same time, when we see people, they take um, liberties because that's the entire point. The gods train their costumes a lot. They don't have actually, you know, costumes. They have styles. So seeing people, how to this, we like encouraging creativity more than mere capitulation of a book. You know, mm-hmm. as in like, just doing a costume that's perfect for the book is fantastic in many ways. But we're also like, we want to see your creativity. You know, that's and that's kind of it's a book about people becoming creators, and so there's at least part of me that really would, you know, what you do is kind of for God's sake, you, you know, do your, do your own stuff. You you're a god, I believe in you. Um, so yeah. Wow, that got very serious. No, <laughs> not even serious. Evangelical. That's even worse. <laughs> no, that's actually perfect. And I have to tell you, like reading your stuff made me start thinking of when I look at other characters costumes now when I read other comics one of the questions I always ask myself is is it cosplayable and you're one of the people who got me thinking about that when I look at costumes for characters 
It is, I mean, it's like, I think Matt Fraction, David Aha's genius stroke on Hawkeye was the Hawkeye costume in terms of, you know, have a plaster on your cheek and a purple T-shirt, you're cosplaying Hawkeye. You know what I mean? That's the kind of, you just choose something really small and iconic and you can do, and that's like a really good way to get traction if you're going to be sneaky like that. Not that we ever were. <laughs> um, Brett, did we have anything else we needed to get in? Nope. Um, that's all the questions from Twitter. So, my so end things I would gladly care. keep Kieran on the phone for another three hours discussing the significance of popular music from various time periods, but mm-hmm. I understand that it is past midnight where you are, um, and I want to spare you. Uh, yeah. I, I actually did have one last question if we can get it in, which was, you know, you you have a bit of cases of writing about you right earlier in your career you it was pretty like you probably wrote maybe I'm wrong I don't know phonogram assuming a lot of your readers would be British but now you're really an international writer and you still have your work really centered in England and it's always interesting like how do you write things that take place in England for an audience that doesn't really necessarily know what these different signifiers mean in England like I was writing something about phonogram and I had to ask somebody like, hey, can you identify the social class of Lloyd's family based on what his house looks like? Like those kinds of questions. Yeah, you know? I, actually, I saw that one actually. And it was always, did I, I retweeted that with the question, the assumption that he was living with his parents. Yes, as that was like, asked, yes. It was, it was like, for me, it's like Lloyd was based, Lloyd, that whole people were based upon basically where I was living in my early 20s. Uh, or like, and my late, or like when I was at university, that kind of the big shared house when there was like six people in those houses, you know, that kind of like. So it's it's a different sort of thing. I mean, it's the kind of like, mm-hmm. but I'm, but the stuff, you know, there's definitely stuff in Wicked in terms of, and it's a lot of the assumptions. I mean, I know in the Sackman issue, there's the assumption that Ruth is middle class because her dad was in a good house when he got eaten alive, and that's there's a series of assumptions in there, <laughs> and I'm sure we, you know we'll get to them eventually. Um, but yeah, we, uh, how much do I worry about setting stories in England for the American audience? Part of me doesn't worry about it too much. Because I think kind of people, if you have a place that feels fairly vibrant and lived in, they'll go with it. And the other part of me is aware that the rest of the world kind of deal with that for America. So if we can deal with it for America, America <laughs> can probably deal with it for us. Um, does that sound sarcastic? But I, don't, I actually mean that in a much more general, I have faith in people way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I don't necessarily. Um, no, you don't lean. To, I mean, there's, there's de- some detail you don't lean too far into, but it's kind of like you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily lean too far to, into it anyway. Because um, for me, the, the specifics of writing England are much more about that. That when people see their place they are living in reflected in the world in an accurate way, uh, that's kind of magical, and it doesn't really trip anyone else up. Occasionally, it's even exotic. You know, you get if you see like, uh, you know, London uh, Laura's like South London wanderings <laughs> in terms of the, the world of um, her going to buy cigarettes from the late night late night places in Broccoli. You can identify, and there's a scene with um, a fried chicken place I want to do in issue 19 with Dionysius. You know, these kind of like really lived in. Oh yeah, this is just kind of how people live here. Um, I just think people, people, people kind of like that. But yeah, okay. I've just, the actual answer to your question was I don't think about it at all. <laughs> I mean, okay. I don't do stuff like um, uh, too weird slang, you know, uh, no abbre- abbreviations which I don't know about. 
anything extraneous. But yeah, I think that I wouldn't do that in America either. Mm-hmm. Um, no. Yeah, I should probably do more thought about it. <laughs> You've actually found something I don't worry about. That's actually quite impressive. Well done. Oh, gosh. Well, no, I mean, the only reason it came to me is because I wanted to write about social class with respect to some of these things. And I know a lot about British stuff, but I didn't trust myself to recognize, like, housing and neighborhoods in terms of British social class, you know. Like, I live in New York, so people, like, look at an apartment and be like, oh, this person has no money. And I'm like, yeah, dude, this was a New York apartment. This person is upper middle class, that kind of thing. Um, So that actually was the – that's the only reason why it came up for me, actually. So it hadn't been – I think unless somebody's really trying to do a really, I guess, really like Marxist class-based analysis of a piece, then perhaps it wouldn't really raise itself. Yeah, I must admit, me, me and Jamie are very particular about our semiotics. You know, like we choose where we're like, we. I would say, what, what's what does what does only Jamie give you? And Jamie understands why a certain person wearing a certain pair of trainers matters. You know, and that that kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, one of my favorite things I saw Jamie do for Material Girl was. Um, he was asking on Facebook, Twitter, okay, how were women wearing their eyebrows in 2001? You know, so so in the flashback circa 2001 and issue one of Immaterial Girl, he wanted to get the right eyebrows. And that's the kind of way Jamie thinks. I love that. I mean, I've mm. said frequently, like, I think he's one of the only, you think he's like the only straight guy in comics who draws clothing well, like that actually reflects what people wear. Everybody else who does a good job is a woman or a gay man, basically. Um, but, like, that amount of characterization that you guys are able to deliver within the clothing is huge, as well as, yeah, as character development, as, like, as social observation. Like, it just works everywhere. So. Mm. Thank you. I mean, it's Jamie's always bewildered why people don't get it, in that you just look outside the world and see what people are wearing. And pay attention. It's like, and I was aware that I know. Obviously, I'm not like Jamie, um, but um, when I started writing comics, I became quite. I'm never. I'm not really a big fashion person, but I, I looked at shop windows a lot. Like I found myself really into shop windows of clothing in a way I wasn't really ever before. Um, I also like remember when I was, like learned to play bass. You just obsessed over bass lines, and for me, it's like if you're drawing people who are normally wearing clothes, it surprises me more people just don't stare at clothes. And I guess that's because many people are just superhero artists or who really, you know, who wanted to be superhero artists and therefore are mainly interested in spandex. I don't know. <laughs> who is interested in spandex? <laughs> right. but we have a anyway. question from Ian Alexander on Twitter and then we'll just wrap it up with this, guys. Um, and he asked, uh, what was the inspiration behind the Terra issue? Uh, you know, and oh, obviously it's a very big social media Issue. Uh, yeah, it was basically there's two. Basically, there was all manner of like harassment stuff happening, and the utter clusterfuck of that. Uh, there was also a, a load of personal things I saw happening because you know I'm friends with many people who got really bad harassment for various reasons, but I'm also interested in terms of like social media's effects on people, how the distancing. Yeah, a lot of really obsessional things about this, and so it just basically had friends. It just basically came from being alive in on the internet <laughs> in 2014, <laughs> and, uh, and I watched that in various horrible ways. I mean, kind of the the easiest. I sort of did. A, I did a big. I do writers' notes every time about my uh, stories. So actually, digging out the time issue notes. If you go writers' notes on my Tumblr, you'll find me do 5,000 words about this. But the two mains were, you know, yes, um, 
you know, the, the, the cultural internet harassment stuff and seeing various of my friends going from the great minder. And of course, that only really gets your story saying internet harassment's bad. The, the, I think the more important, not the more important thing, but one of the more important things in the book is that um, another thing was seeing a friend of mine, not a friend, actually more of an acquaintance, and they'd um, said something quite dumb. Uh, and the, or, shall we say our side of the social media world tore, tore them apart for it um, and you know and I, get, you know, I get that uh, and they didn't handle it particularly well but at the same time I did actually also know they were like really genuinely very depressed and mentally unwell and I was kind of, and, you're, and none of these people you know if, if you knew this person was mentally unwell would you, would you have actually not joined a hate mob even if they'd actually fucked her and the thing is you never know what someone's going through and there's a question of and there's that so on some level, I had to make the reader complicit on the Tava clusterfuck, because that's, which is, if you go into the story, the whole repeated motif of Tara is the fucking Tara thing all the way through the first 12 issues. And the oh. point being, you, you are laughing at that joke. And, uh, you know, various people in the fandom use fucking Tara as a meme up to that point. And then, of course, we reveal, oh, yeah, that's just... And you, um, when you see what fucking Tara actually means, you are in some very small way implicit implicated in the hate mob the idea that you, it's very easy for us to be talked into joining structures which are larger than us based on limited understanding and that's kind of the point and it more like i think the basic fundamental point of tara is just for god's sake let's just think about what we're doing here um so that's where tara I, came yeah. from i mean i think you completely nailed it i on every level i think that succeeded absolutely you know like it's so easy for me to just jump in and be like oh my god she's like the pop star person so i get why people are complaining about her and she's emotionally removed and then it's like, oh, right, well, how, who, who are we to dare? Why do we think that we get to own anybody in that way, right? And by having, and you did definitely successfully make everybody complicit in bullying her, basically. So It's, yeah. com- it's, it's complicated and really sad, and it's like we're, we're pretty much sure that issue is going to be very good or utterly terrible. You know, that was an issue we definitely did some due diligence on. Um, but, yeah, I, I'm, the response to it was overwhelming and, like, upsetting and it was very I always say I, I saw very mixed feelings about it isn't that I'm very glad the book was written I'm kind of annoyed it was written by me as in I kind of wish someone else had done it as in I don't like being complimented for it because you know as a white basically as a white guy doing this I, I feel that you know I, I've earned money off the back of a not lot of real world horror uh, and that makes me feel uncomfortable um, at the same time I, I would also rather the book exist than didn't so it's kind of an uncomfortableness I'm comfortable with feeling so an uncomfortableness that I am comfortable with feeling. But yeah, it's comfortable. You know, the Torah issue, very, there's not many easy answers. <laughs> and, you know, that's kind of what the book's about. Fantastic. Anyway, a cheery well, thank end to conversation. I, yeah, <laughs> I know. I'm like keeping you up past your bedtime unless it was a club night. It's Monday, so it depends what city you live in. No, um... Thank you so much for joining us again, uh, you know, and pulling this off in the bizarre time zone things. Uh, I imagine people listening to this podcast already know where to find you online, but in case they haven't, uh, can you remind everybody of your Tumblr, which you share your amazing author notes on? My name is, uh, my Tumblr is Kieran Gillen at Tumblr, kierangillen.tumblr.com. That's, my name is K-I-E-R-O-N-G-I-L-L-E-N. Uh, I'm also on KieranGillan.com, which is kind of like a more low turnover work blog. I'm Kieran Gillan on Tumblr. Sorry, I'm Kieran Gillan on Twitter. Uh, I'm Kieran Gillan in real life, but with a space. Uh, and I, that's about it, really. That's the main place to find me. And you can get my books from comic shops or the internet. 
Actually, yeah, definitely speak, speak to your comic shop pre-order Wicked 18 because it's going to be absolutely amazing. And pre-order uh, Phonogram Volume 3. Yes, that's still available to pre-order and should be out. Actually, look forward to going to a launch party on April the 1st, which is going to be a giggle. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Karen. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Hope you guys see you soon. Thank you. Thank you. you too. Bye. Bye. Brett. Yes. So before we wrap up, just for anybody uh, who is excited about, you know, I think there's a lot between Karen's work with all of the references to popular culture and how you incorporate that into your life. I think that has a lot actually to do with viewing the Venture Brothers show. Wouldn't you say? <laughs> well, yes, I would think so. <laughs> Indeed. And it's funny because we will be talking about Venture Brothers episode four tomorrow. I'm sorry, Wednesday uh, at 10 p.m. And I hope you all will join us for that with me and Stephen at a well. Yes. Explaining to you all the references that you don't technically speaking need to know, but it's nice if you do. And we'll have that up on uh, Blog Talk on um, probably tomorrow, hopefully. So you'll be able to catch that. And then for those who uh, followed this episode or came in late or want to listen to it again, share it around, etc., It'll be up on iTunes and Stitcher a little bit later. And, of course, it'll be posted up on Blog Talk, or not Blog Talk, or yeah, on uh, SoundCloud tomorrow. So um, you'll be able to catch it there. Or you can always catch it on our site at graphicpolicy.com. Um, so always thank you for listening. Really, really appreciate it. Um, and thank you for the questions for those who asked from Twitter. Um, yeah, that uh, you can catch us every single day at graphicpolicy.com. Of course, we're on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, all at Graphic Policy, keeping it nice and consistent. So until next time, I'm Brett. I'm Ilana. <laughs> Keep it geeky. <laughs>